Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Welcome to the second episode of the Nicaragua Canal, in which we will focus on its environmental consequences and international environmental law issues concerning its construction. The proposed canal, which would link the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans to Nicaragua, will be three times longer, twice as wide, and twice as deep as the Panama Canal, which underwent a major expansion project itself to recently open a third lane and accommodate larger ships on June 26, 2016. The Hong Kong-Nicaragua Canal Development Group, or HKND, received the concession to build the canal by Daniel Ortega's government without any bidding process or proper debate and without the HKND having any construction experience of that nature. Not only does the planned path of the canal run through a hurricane belt in a highly seismic zone, but the canal's path will cut through some of the most biologically diverse areas of the world and Central America's largest lake, Lake Nicaragua, the country's main freshwater supply. El Centro Humboldt, a Nicaraguan environmental NGO, has stated that this project is the greatest environmental threat that Nicaragua has ever faced and poses a severe risk to the freshwater and food security of the Nicaraguan people. With me today to discuss these issues and more is Professor Daniel McGraw, who teaches international environmental law at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Daniel has previously taught at the University of Colorado, the University of California, Berkeley, and Georgetown University Law Center. Previously, he was president and chief executive officer of the Center for Environmental Law, for which he continues to work on substantive matters, and prior to that position, the director of the International Environmental Law Office at the U.S. Environment Protection Agency. Daniel regularly consults for the UN as an expert advisor on international law. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Gravity. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So what are the possible environmental consequences associated with the construction of the proposed canal? Well, this is an excellent first question. Although important details about the canal are not certain, it is clear that the construction and operation of the canal and the associated built infrastructure, such as the new Lake Atlanta Reservoir, roads, utilities, and deep water ports at Brito and the mouth of the Punta Gorda, will cause immense environmental damage. Uh, This damage will run the full range of environmental harms, such as pollution, destruction of natural resources, and destruction of culture. It is correspondingly clear that many human rights will be violated. Let me provide some details. The canal will cut wildlife corridors, including the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, which is home to many species. Uh, It's not clear if any whales will be uh, impacted, for example, but we know that's a possibility. The canal will pollute Lake Nicaragua. This is the largest drinking water reservoir in Central America and is obviously of of, uh, tremendous importance to Nicaragua. The deepening of 105 kilometers of the lake and then ongoing dredging during operations will cause a lot of sediment to be removed. Uh, One question is where it will go. Apparently, they're thinking of creating new islands, but There's also a lot that will have to go outside of the lake and real environmental implications from both of those. Whatever pollutants are already in the sediment will be disturbed, so which is a separate kind of problem. During the operation, there'll be waste disposal from ships, including potentially invasive species, for example, from bilge water, dumping, or leakage. 
and there is likely to be saltwater infiltration through the locks, as has occurred in Panama. The canal will also interfere with clean drinking water. Uh, in the middle of the lake is Ometepe Island, for example, uh, but there are many other aspects of the canal that will affect the availability of drinking water and, and its uh, purity. The canal will destroy habitat during the port construction at Brito and Punta Gorda. Uh, the coral reefs that presumably will be damaged and mangroves along the coast. And once those are damaged, of course, uh, we lose uh, the fishery, the habitats, and also protection of the coast themselves. The canal will destroy habitat along the corridor, the canal corridor, and the associated, associated components. These are among the most fragile, pristine, and scientifically important ecosystems in Central America. It will directly destroy about 400,000 hectares of rainforests and wetlands. It will destroy habitats and food and water sources of several already endangered species. These include Baird's tapir, spider monkey, harpy eagle, and the jaguar, which is a creature of what is described as mythical importance to the Mesoamerican cultures. There will be immense amounts of soil removal from Lake Nicaragua and along the land corridor. As I alluded to earlier, Well, where will that go and what will be the impacts of that, we don't know. And it will interfere with nesting and egg-laying habitats of several endangered sea turtles. The canal will harm wetlands, including those protected by the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands of International Importance. Uh, some of the wetlands are adjacent to the canal corridor, and it's likely that Ramsar-protected wetlands in Nicaragua and Costa Rica adjacent to the San Juan River will be affected because the operation of the canal is likely to require periodic and perhaps cumulative lowering of the level of Lake Nicaragua, and thus will reduce the outflow to the San Juan River which runs through uh, those uh, protected uh, wetlands. This will have impacts in Nicaragua, but it will also have impacts in Costa Rica. And the wetlands are clearly significant from an international environmental perspective, uh, both because they're on the uh, list of wetlands maintained by the Ramsar Convention, uh, and because they've already played important roles in two cases in the International Court of Justice. There's also possibly harm to other protected areas. That depends on the route and operation of the canal. Uh, and again, some of these details are unknown, so we have to we have to think broadly. Uh, but there's the Cerro Silva Natural Reserve to the north, the Indio Mais Biological Reserve, which includes uh, 318,000 hectares of tropical dry forest to the south, and also to the north, the Baswasas Biosphere Reserve, which is 2 million hectares of tropical forest. And it's just impossible at this point to, to know exactly what the harm will be, but it's likely, uh, depending on how the canal was sited and, and operated. It's also clear that the canal will harm cultural sites. There are approximately 550 cultural heritage sites in the canal corridor and associated areas. 430 archaeological sites, 105 built heritage sites, which are buildings of historical importance, 
and 12 living heritage sites, which relate to traditions passed from generation to generation. The canal also result in damage to Costa Rica's environment along the San Juan River, quite apart from the damage to the Ramsar sites, again relating to this need uh, periodically to draw down the, the level of Lake Nicaragua. And then there's likely to be environmental harm and, of course, human rights harm during the massive relocation of villages and indigenous peoples that will be required. This will involve the construction of new villages, roads, etc. So it's clear that there are many, many significant environmental harms at play here, many of them, unfortunately, with international uh, ramifications, not just domestic ones. It's, a, it's going to be a, a huge environmental catastrophe, a huge human rights catastrophe, a very Stygian consequence. Now, fortunately for everyone, <laughs> the HKND, the company that is constructing the canal, um, may run out of funds and may not actually construct the canal. However, they still have land concessions and can build other things instead of a canal. For instance, they could build roads and hotels, and you've just described a most pristine and very biologically diverse uh, environment with endangered species. Now, if they were not to build a canal but build hotels and roads or any other development on this area, would we still be looking at a major environmental impact? You raise a very good point. The concession is unusually broad and indeterminate, providing apparently unfettered license to the Chinese company. And construction and operation of hotels and roads, which you mentioned, these typically have environmental impacts. Uh, how serious those are depend on many variables that we don't know now. We don't know the size, the location, the mode of construction and operation and the local environmental characteristics and populations that might be affected. So right now it's impossible to predict the precise harm. And, and of course, none of those were taken into account in the environmental assessment that was conducted. You also pointed out that there might be other activities. And uh, the ones that concern me the most have to do with mining and forestry, which given experience in other countries, both in Central America and around the world, are even more threatening to the environment and human rights. They often have devastating impacts on local environments and population and indigenous peoples. And again, we know given the nature of many of the expected environmental impacts or ones we could predict, that they'll cause international harm and not just uh, local harm. And an example of that would be impacts on the wildlife corridor and endangered species and, uh, and Ramsar sites. I should say, by the way, that I don't know the exact terms, but if the Chinese company cannot come up with the money to build the dam, I would hope that there's a strong argument that the that the company has violated the the agreement and therefore that it doesn't have these other rights. Or alternatively, that these the rights to develop other projects uh, that have not been identified, that those rights are contingent on building the canal first. Again, I don't know the terms of the contract enough to be able to make those arguments, but I hope someone's thinking about them. That's an excellent point, and I hope someone follows up with that also. Now, you were saying before that we don't really know how drastic the environmental consequences will be, and part of that is the inadequacy of the environmental impact assessment, which was undertaken in an extremely short period of time by a private company hired by HKND 
rather than the Nicaraguan government. Considering that Nicaragua is a party to the Biodiversity and Ramsar Conventions, as well as the Inter-American Convention on the Conservation and Protection of Sea Turtles, which I believe obligate state parties to notify their neighbours of the potential of transboundary harm, did Nicaragua breach its obligations by failing to conduct an appropriate environmental impact assessment and notify its neighbours of any harm? Looking at the treaties first, not clear that we get much help there. The Convention on Biological Diversity in Article 14.1 explicitly requires a contracting party to introduce appropriate procedures requiring environmental impact assessment uh, to its proposed projects that are likely to have significant adverse effects on biological diversity. And in one, uh, an earlier case between these two countries, which was decided in 2015, the International Court of Justice held that this obligation doesn't actually require an environmental assessment. Rather, it requires that the contracting parties have uh, appropriate procedures that themselves require an environmental impact assessment. So as long as Nicaragua has those procedures in place, and I, I don't know if it does, but if it does, then it's not in violation of this particular provision. I, th I think one might argue that Article 5 of the convention, which uh, requires cooperation, implicitly requires such an environmental assessment, in fact, but the, the ICJ was not presented with that argument and, and did not decide on it. The Ramsar Convention does not explicitly require environmental assessments, either domestically or in a transboundary context. Uh, one can make an argument there that the convention implicitly uh, requires an environmental assessment because uh, without one, it can't fulfill its obligations under Articles 3 and 5. The International Court of Justice, in the case I just mentioned, held that two aspects of the convention were not violated, either by a failure to have an environmental assessment done or to a failure of consultation. Now, given the court's reasoning, actually, that the result might differ if the impacts of the canal are sufficiently great, because in that case, the court held that Nicaragua had not shown that there would be significant environmental harm from the road that Costa Rica was building. Having said all that, it is clear under customary international law that, at least as I read this, that Nicaragua has failed to fulfill its obligations under general international law. And I, I say that because, uh, partly because of the pulp mills case, which held, this was in 2010, between Argentina and Uruguay, specifically held that general international law does require a transboundary uh, environmental impact assessment if there is a risk of significant environmental harm, which I think here it's clear there is. I should point out that human rights law also requires an environmental impact assessment if environmental harm might cause a violation of human rights. And that, again, seems clear here, given the number, for example, of indigenous peoples who are in the path of the canal and will otherwise be affected by the canal. That's not a transboundary environmental impact assessment necessarily, but rather domestic. So there has been something done here, as you point out. Is that enough? Well, first of all, it, it doesn't really matter that it was contracted out to a private party, I think. I don't think that's really an issue. That's common in certain parts of the world. 
and governments, in fact, often don't have the the uh, tremendous expertise that's needed to do one of these things. Um, I do think, however, that it's clear that Nicaragua did not fulfill its obligation. First of all, it was way late. You have to do these things, not you, but a country has to do the environmental impact assessment before a decision is made and before work is started. Otherwise, it loses its purpose. The purpose is to ensure that environmental impacts are included in decision-making and that alternative uh, approaches are also uh, considered. And that means that the assessment must be conducted in advance of the decision, which was clearly not done here. You also alluded to the fact that this was done in a very short time. And uh, in my judgment, that disqualifies this from, from meeting the international obligation as well. If we just think about Lake Nicaragua for a second, um, to try to understand the, the flow of water in a body that size takes a lot of research. That research could not have been done in a year and a half, uh, let alone applied and analyzed uh, to such a complex project. So I think it's absolutely clear that, that Nicaragua has violated its uh, international law uh, obligations with respect to those two elements. It also could be that it just doesn't do a good scientific job in other respects, uh, too. It did look at some possible transboundary impacts, but not all of them, in my view. You've mentioned before that the in impending environmental catastrophe, if the canal were to be built, would certainly impact Costa Rica. And you've also mentioned the recent ICJ case, I believe it was decided in December last year, between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. And in general, Nicaragua and Costa Rica are no strangers to meeting each other in the ICJ over their territorial and environmental disputes. Now, this latest standoff, where it concerned the Costa Rican road beside the San Juan River and dredging by Nicaragua on the San Juan River to build small canals, not this main canal. How do you see the various issues in this case and the decision by the ICJ that would impact uh, any petition that Costa Rica would make against Nicaragua and the construction of this canal? There are several aspects in which that case and others that deal with watercourses, for example, could be important for the canal. If we go back for a second to the transboundary impact assessment, as I already said, it's clear to me Nicaragua's actions violate international law in this respect. Now, there are two elements to this, as, as you know. One is, is there a violation? And second, what is the remedy for that? And thus far, the, the remedies that have been applied in these kinds of situations uh, have not been very strong. So in the pulp mills case, for example, the International Court of Justice held that Uruguay had failed to notify uh, Argentina as required by an agreement between the two countries, but it essentially held that, that that very holding is enough of a remedy, that that is satisfaction to Argentina to have the World Court hold that Uruguay had violated that obligation. And that, of course, does not provide much of a sanction or on Uruguay. So if, if the same thing were to happen here, and that's also what happened in the in the road case that you're referring to that was decided in December 2015 is the court said that, well, the fact we're holding here that Costa Rica in that case 
violated its general international law obligation to conduct a transboundary uh, environmental impact assessment. The fact that we're holding that is enough. That's enough of a remedy. Now, there are two problems with that, if that were to apply in the case of uh, of the canal. The, the first is that the damage might be much larger, and I'll come back to that. And the second is that the international community has an interest in the Ramsar sites that are on either side of this river. One is in, in Nicaragua, one is in Costa Rica. And we all, you and I and everyone listening uh, to this podcast, has an interest in that. It's, uh, the whole point of the Ramsar Convention is these are wetlands of international importance. It usually has to do with migratory birds, but not always. So th the result of that is that all of us have an interest in this. And if the court were to say, well, it, it's enough for us, to, to, uh, for us, the court, just to say that there's a violation, that that's, that's enough of a remedy, that doesn't satisfy the interest that the rest of the world has in these Ramsar sites. So I would hope that in this kind of situation, the International Court of Justice would not uh, limit itself to that kind of remedy. The other point here is a lot, I think, will depend on how much harm is likely to occur or has occurred already. In the road case, the court held that Nicaragua had not shown that there was really any significant environmental harm caused by the road that Costa Rica was building right alongside the river. And in the absence of that, then many other legal ramifications followed, legal implications. The court just said, well, some of these provisions that you're alleging are violated aren't. And the principle uh, 21 of the Stockholm Convention, which is also repeated in, the, uh, in Article 3 of the Convention on Biological Diversity, that holds a state responsible for environmental harm that occurs in this, the territory of another state or in territory beyond state jurisdiction doesn't apply because there's no significant harm. So I, I think uh, that would be a very big question is, is how much environmental harm can be shown. And of course, given the international nature of some of these other interests that would apply to uh, injury to endangered species, etc. And And unfortunately, the court thus far has indicated that it has a pretty high standard. It requires a lot of harm uh, in order to to reach that threshold of significance. And so there would be a, a major issue of proof here. And again, we don't know enough now to be able to predict that. But if there were such a case, then the proof of harm would be a very important element in it. Now, say that we could prove the harm and the ICJ does view that there's going to be a significant environmental impact. Has there ever been a case where the ICJ has found significant environmental impact and actually in, provided a remedy that has made a state either stop construction or development or any activity such as mining that was causing the environmental impact? The ICJ has not, has not dealt with mining cases. It's dealt with cases on rivers and it's recognized the importance of the of principle 21 and said that it's, it is a, a um, principle of international law. It's used slightly different language, but basically uh, it has, has 
recognized it. But we don't have very many cases that are very strong on that. We do, of course, have other cases, the, the famous trail smelter case, where Canada and the U.S. were in contention over a smelter in Canada, and ultimately a, a, an arbitral tribunal held that Canada had to stop the transboundary pollution and, and um, essentially impose uh, regulations that would stop it. And if any happened in the future, it had to make reparations. The, the court has not handled that uh, that straightforward a case, but there are others that are similar. There are also some other um, arbitrations that that have taken that approach. Uh, so there are examples in international law that Costa Rica and maybe others can turn to. And part of the problem is that some of the treaties that are relevant, for example, the Inter-American Convention for the Protection and Conservation of Sea Turtles, it seems highly likely to me that that will be violated here because of the additional sea traffic and the creation of these deep water ports. That requires uh, that parties, and, and Nicaragua is a party, uh, to take appropriate and necessary measures to protect, conserve, and recover uh, sea turtle populations and their habitats, and there are more details than that. But it seems pretty likely to me that we're going to have that kind of impact. We all have an interest in that. The treaty doesn't have a dispute settlement uh, mechanism that's strong. And so where one could actually find a tribunal to decide that would be very difficult. And that's also true with Principle 21. If we if, if we apply it to any other country than Costa Rica, Costa Rica and Nicaragua, as you say, have gone to the world court several times and uh, seem to have a, a pattern of doing that. Uh, so that might that might be possible. Uh, and then there are other other treaties too. I mean, there's there's the Convention on Biological Diversity that that requires in situ conservation of of uh, biological diversity, which this uh, canal looks like it will violate based on uh, all the information we have. And it also requires the, the that a country uh, respect, preserve, and maintain knowledge, innovation, and practices of indigenous and local communities embodying traditional lifestyles relevant to the conservation and sustainable use of biological diversity, that seems that it will be uh, violated too. But the question there, again, is who can bring the action and would there even be a tribunal that would have jurisdiction to hear it? And would Costa Rica be the strongest petitioner in any action or... Who do you suggest would be the the strongest petitioner and what would be the strongest legal argument against Nicaragua that we could get? Well, first, Nicaragua could always agree to, to go to a tribunal now. I mean, if the United States, for example, were to say, well, we, we care about this, the migratory birds that, that may not be able to use these wetlands anymore. You know, the flyway goes down through the United States to to Central America and beyond, if, if there were that kind of claim and Nicaragua said, okay, well, we'll we agree to go to some tribunal, then, then that would be a way to do it. That hypothetical, I mean, the U.S. and Nicaragua don't have the best of relationships. So you can see how that might depend on which country was asking Nicaragua to do this. There may be treaties uh, that apply 
that would allow for jurisdiction already. My guess is that the treaty over the San Juan River may allow it. And in that case, of course, Costa Rica would be the strongest with respect to any claims relating to the San Juan River. Um, if there are claims about the about indigenous uh, or endemic species that, that are threatened, again, Costa Rica is very close, but other countries might have at least as much of an interest. So it would depend on the circumstance. Now, I partly dare not ask this question, but if they were in whatever tribunal, if we did have a petitioner claim against the construction of the canal, and if Nicaragua were found not to be in violation of a certain treaty or in violation of international environmental law, whether it's customary law or for another convention, how would this impact the development and enforcement of environmental rights under international law? Well, it's a very difficult question, uh, partly because it's it's a hypothetical, and we don't know what the facts are. As, as we've already said, we don't have an adequate environmental impact assessment, so it's hard even to to address the likely impacts of the canal, let alone these other activities that you've talked about, where we have no idea at all. You know, mining, forestry projects, uh, hotels, roads, etc. But if we take it as a hypothetical, on the environmental impact assessment, I, I think at this stage, if a tribunal held that somehow this was sufficient, that would be a severe blow to international environmental law, and I think actually to, to international law generally, because the, the law is so clear and the violations, in my judgment, are so clear. Having said that, of course, there's the remedy question. And if once again the court says, well, there's a violation, but don't worry, it's enough that we know to, that we say that. At some point, it becomes not important that the law has been violated. So I think we'd have to look at the remedy very closely in that respect. With respect to these other potential violations, the failure to notify possible transboundary harm, etc., I think it depends a lot on how much harm there actually is. And, and I think there will be, unfortunately, a lot of harm. But whichever country is alleging that will have to demonstrate that. And it's clear, as I said, or it seems clear, that the court requires a substantial amount of proof to show that there's significant environmental harm. Again, if that were done, then we'd have to look to the remedy. And Nicaragua is either the poorest or the second poorest country in the hemisphere. And... Uh, I would imagine that that would impact the kind of reparations that a tribunal would ask for. So I think it's it's a very difficult situation. And, you know, the impact on the environment and on environmental law and perhaps on human rights law could be significant. I know you have other people talking about human rights, but I would just say that we do have institutions in this hemisphere in which one can bring claims that human rights have been violated by environmental harm. And I would expect that that would be done here, that at least in, uh, some people would bring uh, complaints in the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. They're human rights claims, but they, they depend on environmental harm, these particular claims I'm thinking of. And countries have tended to comply with the with the rulings of the commission. Brazil did not recently, and that was a real blow. But usually countries respond to the commission's 
rulings, and if it goes from the commission to the court, the Inter-American Court of, of Human Rights, then you have a, a real binding decision. And I have to confess, I'm not sure whether Nicaragua is a party to the convention that allows it to be brought to that court or not. But I know it, it can be brought to the Inter-American Commission. So I would expect that that will happen. Right. And right now, the Inter-American Commission is in severe financial crises, unfortunately. And you've also been talking about the problem generally in international law with respect to remedies. You know, we're very unlikely, even with a strong decision, to get an injunction to be enforced by the ICJ, for instance. What has worked in terms of political pressure that anyone, people in general, as well as states and NGOs, can place on Nicaragua to stop this construction, which will devastate not only Nicaraguan the Nicaraguan environment, uh, harm the Nicaraguan people by contaminating their freshwater and their environment, harm indigenous communities there, but also impact Costa Rica and the world generally because we're looking at very important, pristine, endemic species and biodiverse regions that are important to us all, as you've mentioned many times during this interview. I don't know Nicaragua well enough to strategize about how to bring political pressure there. I would say generally that the more information that we can get, the more effective advocacy efforts will be, because I think this particular project is severely questionable on many grounds. I mean, one is the environmental grounds that we've just been talking about. A second is the human rights area. A third is the nature of the contract. It seems to put the Ortega family in a controlling position for for decades with respect to the relations between this Chinese company and Nicaragua. And as I understand it, it was uh, the, the contract was awarded with under a no-bid situation, which is extraordinary given the scope of the contract. And so one really has to ask, well, there's there some sort of corruption uh, involved here? And the more we can find out about all that, I think the more likely it is that this can be stopped. I don't know Nicaragua well enough to strategize about how to go about putting pressure on it. Let's hope that Nicaragua doesn't go through with the canal nor develop these lands. And uh, going back to your earlier point that if the HKND fails to have the funds to construct the canal, and this is a company that has absolutely no experience in constructing canals, which is also something that's pertinent to the environmental impact that may occur if this company were constructing the canal. But let's hope that they could be said to have breached the agreement and not have the land concessions and then be able to develop the land and, like you said, forestry or mining uh, activities on such a pristine environment. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for your time here today and your very insightful answers on this pertinent issue. We very much appreciate your time on Gravity. Thank you very much. And I I'm, I'm, uh, appreciate your interest in, in this set of issues. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.